This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. I am Caitlin Beatty. I'm the print managing editor of Christianity Today. And I'm joined as always by my co-host Morgan Lee. Hey, Morgan. It's great to have you back, Caitlin. Thanks. Glad to be back. Caitlin, today our guest is Mark Yarhouse, who has his doctorate in clinical psychology and his master's in theological studies. He is also the founding director of the Institute for the Study of Sexual Identity, and he wrote a major piece for us last year called the Understanding the Transgender Phenomena. Mark, it's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, Mark, it's really good to hear your voice. And we we at CT really appreciate your writing and your expertise on really complicated issues, including the issue that we will talk about this week. So as our listeners know, most controversies in our world come with a lot of complexity and tension. And the point of this podcast is to acknowledge those tensions and work out as best we can how Christians can respond well and winsomely. This week, we will be talking about an extremely hot news story about the way Americans use public restrooms. So a lot of our listeners have probably heard of the so-called bathroom bill that passed in North Carolina in March. The bill says that public restrooms intended for more than one person must be used by individuals based on their biological sex. So basically like their physical makeup and not their gender identity or how they identify as individuals. Six other states are currently considering similar legislation. Uh, Meanwhile, two weeks ago, the Obama administration directed all public schools to allow transgender students to use the bathroom that corresponds with their gender identity. So these these movements raise some significant questions about safety. That's one of the main kind of pushbacks to something like what we heard from the Obama administration a couple weeks ago. But I think you know, for Christians, especially where we these issues raise questions about God's intentions for our sexuality and the goodness of maleness and femaleness. So we are just going to go right into the complexity and tension. And we're really glad that Mark Yarhouse will be helping us do that. Now, before we get into our gut check, which we do every week, I wanted to point out that Quick to Listen is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. We offer redemptive yet honest coverage of the people, events and ideas shaping the church in culture. If you are a CT Magazine subscriber, which if you're not, you should fix that really soon. Each year you get 10 award-winning print issues, uh, tablet and PDF editions of each issue, full web access to our website, christianitytoday.com, online archives dating back to 1956. And if you are a listener of Quick to Listen, you get a year-long subscription at our lowest rate available, which is $10. If you're interested in that, head over to orderct.com slash podcasts and type in the phrase quick to listen as the discount code. This is a really great deal. (laughs) Yeah, $10. Come on, people. That's like a Chipotle burrito with some additional toppings. So before we get into the bigger discussion, we also want to just take time to acknowledge that we have gut reactions to major controversies in our world. It's best to get those out on the table before delving into the conversation. So, Mark, what is your gut reaction on both the so-called bathroom bill in North Carolina and the Obama administration's directive and kind of how 
use of public bathrooms have become such a hot button issue in our current climate? Yeah, I mean, my, my initial gut reaction was that, uh, that, that legislation in general is probably not going to be helpful for the kinds of complexities we're talking about. I think people experience legislation as an attack on the things that they believe in, and other people believe that legislation is symbolic of things that matter the most to them. And so I think you could quickly have two sides just speaking past one another, and I think that's essentially what we have today. What about you, Morgan? Gut check. I really wish someone was doing something like quick to listen is about this topic. (laughs) That was literally how I felt. I felt like getting off of social media and seeing the responses there and trying to find people who were actually trying to figure out the issue that had maybe stepped away from some of the the visceral reactions that wrongly or rightly exist on both sides. Also, I guess my other reaction, though, to the specific Obama administration executive order was that happened quickly and was a little bit unexpected. Yeah, and obviously people are saying that that was an overreach of the presidential power without any kind of other input from Congress or anything like that. So my gut check is that this is so complicated and the persons who are affected by these bills, whatever side you're on of the debate, get really lost really quickly because of the back and forth in the sexual politics conversation. And that makes me sad. So going into our main conversation, I I wanted to get your take, especially from Mark, on why is it that bathrooms, as opposed to other public spaces, are becoming central arenas for the broader political debate? What do the bathrooms have to do with larger conversations about gender identity and the broader LGBTQ movement? Well, I think they've become symbolic of a sense of identity and personhood that is represented by the transgender community, gender nonconforming community. You know, when you think of your biological sex and your gender identity, biological sex in terms of your chromosomes and anatomy, gender identity in terms of your experience of yourself as male or female, um, I think bathrooms end up becoming kind of symbolically the place that distinguishes males and females in one public setting. And also in our culture, they've been a part of a history of potential discrimination. So I also think it ties in a narrative of civil rights in ways that uh, other public spaces wouldn't. I, I was thinking about other public spaces that do use gender as a way to segregate, and I didn't come up with that many. I mean, for the most mm-hmm. part, universities that are gender selective are private universities. Sports, I guess, could be a big way. But there's something about bathrooms that it seems like is so much a part of the human experience Hmm. that you use and you take, you know, for for many people who experience the gender that is on their birth certificate, they take for granted every single day that I I, I think it has the sense of very just like, ordinary and mundaneness Hmm. that people haven't ever thought to question that most people ever haven't thought to question. And so yeah, I, I think it, I think it's that common denominator experience to me. And the fact that most of us, our experience of being male or female actually corresponds with our biological sex. That's true for the vast majority of people. We take it for granted when we go to the bathroom that we are comfortable, feel comfortable in this. You know, I feel comfortable as a woman going into the women's bathroom. Men feel comfortable going to the men's bathroom. The discomfort comes when your your experience of gender does not align with your biological sex. It also, yeah, I think it strikes me that bathrooms are one of the few places where we we kind of say implicitly like anatomy matters. Now, how you get into 
verifying or legislating some of these bills is like a really tricky issue. I don't think any of us want a scenario where people are stripped down to make sure that they like have the right parts, which I know is getting icky. But if you're listening to a podcast about transgender issues, you can handle it. How commonly known or how common is the term cisgender? I don't think it's very commonly uh, known. So the idea is to distinguish between types of people. Does this discussion of gender identity uh, represent kinds of people? And so if we identify a certain group of people as transgender, then who are they being compared to? Like, And so the vast majority of people would be called cisgenders so that their experience of their biological sex and their gender identity corresponds. And I think the thinking at the time was to not allow the majority to not go unexamined in a sense, like you're also designated, whereas the majority typically designate the minority. Uh, there was a desire to make sure that both were designated. So yeah, so cisgender is a contrast to transgender. This is wading into deeper territory, but in your clinical research and experience working with clients, Mark, is it fair or accurate to describe transgender people as like a cl- an, an immutable class of people? Or is gen- there something about gender identity that's more complicated or, or fluid than that? Yeah, I think it's I think it's more complicated. I mean, what what you're what you're essentially saying is that there's a there's more than a male female binary, and there's experiences that reside along a continuum. And I think that's true. I mean, you certainly see that with intersex conditions, and you do see that with gender dysphoria and different experiences like that. I think the question is, what do you make of them? I mean, do you, is it is it so uncommon that the exceptions essentially prove the rule of the binary? Or are you talking about something so, such a continuum and so, so clear that uh, it sort of calls the binary into question and you end up kind of deconstructing the binary as though it was an oppressive source of authority? And I think that's where, where many people in the social justice movement would see it more as a source of authority that's oppressive to a people group. And so, Again, I think that's where we're just speaking past one another because many people just wouldn't see it that way. Mark, I wanted to go back to something that you talked about earlier, which was about whether laws and legislation were really the right ways to go about having some of these conversations. And it seems like for anything that is a little bit more complicated, that's exactly where laws start to fall apart because they rely on a certain number of generalizations and assumptions about how things are and don't always take into account nuances. Yeah, I I agree with that. Absolutely. And while we're on the topic of the particular kinds of legislation, going back to the North Carolina bill, one of the stated exceptions is that if you have transitioned surgically, if you've undergone significant surgery in order that your physical biological makeup corresponds with your inward gender identity, that there would be an exception to that, that you could, in fact, use the bathroom that corresponds with your gender identity. Yeah, so I think the uh, I think the in- the intention was to have exceptions so that if you had surgical procedures that were required for your birth certificate, your name and your birth certificate to be changed, that that would be an exception to this. And I I got the sense that there was an effort to recognize that there were a group of people we commonly refer to as transsexual, so they adopt a cross-gender identifi- identity, full-time basis, and pursue some of the more invasive procedures like surgeries, that there were exceptions that would be uh, for people like that. I think, you know, when I heard that, I, I was struck by 
the idea that you just that most people don't actually get surgeries. You know, most people do a social transition of some kind, or they're in a process of kind of figuring this out. And uh, if you think of the different resolutions as residing along a continuum from the least invasive to the most invasive steps a person could take, most people don't do the most invasive steps. And so, do you end up reinforcing the most invasive steps as the only way someone can legally use this public restroom? when most people just don't do that. Uh, and that, that's where you get into the complexities of legislation. One thing that you said in your your article for Christianity Today last year, Mark, was that for clients that you work with, you often will recommend the least invasive measure possible in order for that person to basically cope with their experience of gender dysphoria. Do you still hold to that in your work? Yeah, that's, I mean, really what they're, they're already doing by the time they see me is they've typically tried to do this through trial and error. So a biological female who finds it less distressing when she wears male boxer shorts or, you know, some females that I've worked with would wear a binder or a biological male would wear light makeup or something like this. I mean, they're trying through trial and error to find strategies that are not particularly invasive, but help take the edge off of the dysphoria, which they find can be really distressing to them. And so you kind of could locate those strategies along a continuum. And I think most people just try to find a landing point that's not as invasive as the most invasive steps they could take. Is it true that for, for a lot of our listeners, like Caitlyn Jenner would be one of the most visible examples of someone who has transitioned? I'm assuming that she chose to surgically transition. Yeah, that's my understanding. I mean, someone someone in a celebrity like that, someone in, in that kind of a spotlight, I think has made this uh, remarkably visible. Uh, it's not a very common presentation at all, just to experience gender dysphoria, let alone to do a full cross-gender identification and transition with hormonal treatment and surgery. So I think that's one of the challenges in having reality shows about someone like that is that it ends up making it perhaps seem much more common than it otherwise is uh, on the the upside that if you're certainly sympathetic to this community, you would recognize this as a very positive validation that there are people who are transgender and you find that to be very helpful to your community. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, breathe, receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, breathe, receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So it seems like then most Americans are learning about transgender issues through two primary ways, which would be through a reality TV show um, and through this particular family, the Jenner Kardashians, and the other way would be through laws. And I'm just wondering, what are better entry points for us to have for this topic? I think the better entry point is through the kind of the, the typical... The typical person, but I remember uh, a transgender acquaintance of mine said, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person, uh, meaning we're, we're, they're just such great diversity within that community, and it's just not that common. So uh, you may not know that many people who are transgender. They may have no reason to, 
to tell you this part of their life, but I think the the more typical experience, uh, one Christian that I interviewed for a study that I'm doing right now, a transgender Christian said to me that the secular answer is to transition, and the Christian answer is to try to find healing through counseling, but the reality for the majority of us is that we live with it every day, and it's just really difficult. And I think that's exactly right. It, it does just seem to me that, per your point about the experience being so different for each person, you know, oftentimes we'll we'll meet one person and we'll want them to be the representative for everybody that's mm-hmm. out there and to kind of give us like, what is the definitive experience? And I think to me, from like a larger standpoint, one of the reasons why this issue confounds us so much is because it pushes back against these tendencies that we have to generalize and to make assumptions about how things are and to maybe even rely on our own experiences, which is a primary way that we get information about the world, about how the world works. Um, are there any other ways, whether it's books to read or places that we can get information that just kind of push back against our like maybe single story assumptions? Mark's book is good. <laughs> <laughs> remind, remind us of the name of your InterVarsity Press book, Mark. Yeah, it's called Understanding Gender Dysphoria. And then the subtitle was Navigating Transgender Issues in a Changing Culture. And what I did try to do in the book was tell the stories of people that I know um, I interviewed many people and I had done some research uh, previously of transgender Christians and just, you know, what are the actual experiences of people that, that I've met? Some I met through my professional work. And so they were, you know, people who were distressed and they were looking for help. Other people I just knew as acquaintances and they were willing to share their stories. And so I tried to, to give kind of a wide array of what presentations could look like and to introduce the reader to people they probably wouldn't meet day to day to just show them that this is not, this can't be reduced to legislation and it can't be reduced to reality shows. It's been such a gift to have you speaking into these issues, Mark, precisely for the fact that I'm assuming most of CT's readers do not know any transgender people, or they might know transgender people, but those people have have chosen to be relatively private about their experience of gender. And I feel like we have to acknowledge that this topic of transgender issues makes a lot of Christians really uncomfortable, right? There's a sort of, we don't know what to do with this this larger topic. Well, I think we have to also consider our recent history. So um, in the United States, there was a recent, you know, recent ruling in favor of gay marriage that that I think left many social conservatives feeling like kind of lost at sea a bit culturally. In a sense, they were unable to make their case publicly regarding the uh, what marriage is, how Christians uh, understand it. And they and so if the case wasn't made in a way that would um, lead to the outcomes that social conservatives wanted, I think there was a lot of free-floating anxiety and frustration about that. And quickly on the heels of that comes the transgender issue. And if, if, the, if the gay marriage issue felt like it was in recent history, it, it still took quite a while for that case to be made in our, in our history. But the transgender issue has been condensed in such a short time span that I think Christians, their, their heads are just spinning around this. And then these bathroom bills, things like this, when you don't know transgender people, of course, I mean, for people who know transgender people, transgender people have been using the bathroom that corresponds with their gender identity this entire time. Whether there's legislation or not, 
uh, if you've adopted a cross-gender identity in your social transition, you would be using that bathroom. I think the legislation have given it great spotlight and great significance. And I think the emotional reaction you're getting from social conservatives is probably stronger in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling about marriage, actually, than it would have been had there been more just distance from the two events. I've also seen connections made by social conservatives that link some of the conversations we're having about sexual assault right now um, with their own fears about sexual predators taking advantage of these bathroom ordinances, I guess, not specifically this bathroom bill, because it obviously was in the opposite direction. Right. Um, but in a, a case like Target as its own private corporation. And so in, in that way, taking taking an issue that does cause people obvious anxiety and anxiety that has been noted and articulated much more publicly, I would say, in the past three years with regards to sexual assault and rape. Hmm. Um and and even just the idea, um, I've, I've seen other blogs just note, again, the fact that victims of sexual assault can feel triggered at various times and then tying it in with people's fear of doing something, again, that they see as mundane. It seems to be... Now, there's various opinions on whether these ordinances would actually be used by, for example, men pretending to be women going into the women's bathroom. Obviously, we we don't know if that's what would happen, but that's the fear. And it seems to be this, this really key example of con- conflicting interests or what cost would it come for allowing someone who wants to go to the bathroom that corresponds with their gender identity? What potential cost does it have for other people? How do these ordinances affect people who are, are not caught in the crossfires of the transgender debate, but are these are these people going to be casualties in our attempts to make bathroom use more comfortable for transgender people? And, you know, I'm open to that thoughtful discussion about this, but I just have not found that, first of all, predators are going to find victims uh, independent of what legislation is. I think when social conservatives emphasize the things that people fear, I think it works in the short term to sort of rally troops around a cause, but I don't think it has a long-term effect that's very positive for social conservatives because it, because I I think we're at our best. Christians are at their best in these discussions when they're more compassionate, more willing to listen, more willing to understand to sort of, you know, what are ways that we can be hospitable in the public and in our own settings where we have more say, like when our, in our churches and other institutions. And I'm not saying that things couldn't happen as a result of that legislation, but, but I, I don't think you stop predators with certain legislation or lack of legislation. Predators are going to find victims and playing on people's fears isn't a long-term solution for the way that I think Christians want to engage the culture. I would hesitate to reduce everything to fear on on the social conservatives part that it's it's just rallying people around fear at the very least i think those feelings of fear are legitimate this is very new territory for us as a culture and we don't know we don't yet know the outcomes of i mean basically moving toward multiple people unisex bathrooms is the effect that this would eventually have We've never organized bathrooms that way before. So I think it makes sense that people would be raising questions about potential outcomes. Having said that, I definitely agree that, you know, before we're fighting for specific legislation, or at least in accordance with pushing for specific legislation, we need to be 
in relationships with people who these bills or ordinances affect in a direct way and not just seek legal a legal pathway forward. When I've interviewed transgender Christians about some of these issues, some some have said to me, like if they went to a church, like if you just have a family restroom, one a biological female who's transgender shared with me, she said, and she identifies as female, so I'm going to use that. But she she said, look, I if you have a family restroom, I that's that's fine for me. I don't want where I use a restroom to be a distraction from my participation in corporate worship. And and there was a level of like spiritual maturity in her being able to just I think recognize that this is not about my self-interest and what I need and what people have to recognize in me, my rights. It was there's a spirit of worship in church and I don't want to detract from that. But I don't want this to be a big point of discussion or focus. I just know that for hospitality's sake, I'd like to be able to use a family restroom. And I've known other people who've said similar things. You get into the legal issues and you and you involve attorneys and you say, what does a person have a right to? Then it becomes it becomes a very difficult discussion. You, you, it's not about hospitality. It's about what I have the right to access. That's a really beautiful point in the church in its ideal. Our first consideration as individuals is what is what is best for my neighbor? What is best for the corporate body? And being willing to kind of set aside individual preference or right in many cases, you know, obviously, there are certain cases where we would say, no, you need to push for your individual preference. But that sense of it doesn't all come down to my individual right. It's about being part of a bigger, a bigger body and, and wanting to be hospitable to that body. So that's a really great note to end on. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for your willingness to join us this week to delve into deep, complicated waters. We are grateful for the listeners who have chimed in, who have followed us in the conversation up to this point. If there are particular angles to this topic that we neglected to mention, please feel free to give us your feedback. We are on Twitter at CT Podcast. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. We will also be posting the aforementioned subscription code there so you can get your $10 deal on a one-year print issue subscription, which I would highly recommend doing. And now we are going to transition to the segment of the show we call Precious Moments. The time of the show where we go around and name one person, place, or thing that is giving us a particular kind of joy this week. So, Mark, we understand that you just returned from international travels. That's right. I was just in Ukraine, and so what gave me joy was the opportunity to train pastors in Kiev, which uh, who have a tremendous heart for people that they're caring for and just hungry to to learn and to receive information on how to love and care for people better. So that was uh, that's been on my mind. Where can we find you online? Oh, yes. You could find me at sexualidentityinstitute.org. That's the main website for the Institute for the Study of Sexual Identity. So it's sexualidentityinstitute.org. Are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter, actually. Yeah, at Mark Yarhouse. My precious moment. I don't know if it's too soon. I'm going to say it anyway. I'm running a half marathon in 10 days. I guess that's a happy thing. Maybe I should have (laughs) waited until after I ran the half marathon. Yeah. To say that you finished it. Yeah, but I don't know. I guess I'm kind of excited about it. Yeah. It's going to be outside of Minneapolis. It's the second year in a row that I've done one. Are you just trying to make us feel bad about our relative lack of I want to try and make you feel bad by saying I may run a marathon later this year. That's that's the worst. I am 
online at M E P A Y N L on Twitter. On Twitter. Thank you. <laughs> Where I talk about sports a lot. Yes. My precious moment of the week, I finished a book that we as a staff at CT have been reading together called Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle, who's a social psychologist and researcher at MIT. And she basically is convincing all of us that our smartphones are doing really, really bad things for human connection and conversation. So we are discussing that book as a staff over we've done so over the past month, we'll continue to talk about it. And I'm just grateful that she's helped me check my own smartphone habits, social media habits, and at least try to be more attentive to the flesh and blood people around me. And you can find me online at Twitter at Caitlin Beatty. Well, that is it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. We also want to give a special shout out to Kate Shellnut. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, please make sure to review and rate us on iTunes. That helps us a lot. Thanks again. See you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.